think a burning question for a lot of feminists is, what is the origin of patriarchy? How did it get started if it's not the natural order of things, which I would argue that most feminists do not believe that patriarchy is inherent within our species, but rather is deeply socialized and constructed socially. Why? Why patriarchy? How did it get started and how long ago? I'm not either a technological nor environmental determinist. I mean, what happened in history happened. It doesn't mean it had to happen. I think there's a great deal of evidence that at least in the areas around the Mediterranean, the shift began with the incursions and invasions, really, of nomadic uh, herders uh, who brought with them this uh, not only domestication of animals, but uh, what we might call the domestication of women. And that from there on, as I write in my book, The Chalice and the Blade, as well as in my the next book that I wrote, Sacred Pleasure, when civilization resumed, because it was really interrupted by this, when it resumed its course, it was more in the direction of domination rather than partnership. So a matrifocal society, these matrifocal societies existed approximately 5,000, but even longer ago than 5,000 years ago before patriarchy really took hold. What were these matrifocal societies like? How were they organized and ordered? Well, this is a point that I make in my work, which is that we are in a semantic trap where the assumption is that you either dominate or you're dominated. You either rule or you're ruled. And that the real uh, alternative to patriarchy is not matriarchy, uh, but what I call a partnership society. And the indications really are, if you look at the archaeology, uh, there are no signs that men were in the same really uh, semi-enslaved position that you find that women uh, began to be in, in you know, in, in the later uh, parts of prehistory in the late Neolithic as well as then in most places other than Minoan Crete uh, in the Bronze Age. What you find, for example, and it's interesting that the archaeologist who excavates Tzatalhuyak uh, at this point, um, he, he wrote in the Scientific American uh, that there are no signs really that being born male or female uh, had any impact on either nutrition or on status. And he wrote it with sort of a wonder because we've all, as you said, been socialized to believe that that's just how it is. It's either divinely or naturally ordained that men rule women. Yeah. If you recreated what the what these matrifocal societies, pre-patriarchal societies, what their daily lives were like, like what were the roles that men and women were playing, and if, what did they do when they got up in the morning, who went hunting, hunting, who went gathering, what were the tasks, the daily tasks they were engaged in, how were their societies organized? Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Yes, of course. Well, the clues that we have, and again, this is a, a new, relatively new branch of anthropology, the study of foraging societies. You know, the standard, or it used to be, because it's beginning to fortunately change, at least for some scholars, the standard social biological and to some extent also evolutionary psychology dogma is that, well, uh, the problems that we have today of domination, of, of male violence, etc., all stem from the time that we lived as foragers, you know, millennia, right, uh, in the savannah. Well, what we're finding out through the study of uh, contemporary foraging societies that actually these societies really orient much more to the partnership side of the continuum. And what we find from them is that they are much more peaceful, that while women and men uh, tend to have some differences in roles, one practice there is what we would call, well, what scholars call alloparenting. In other words, that it wasn't only the woman who was supposed to care for the young, uh, for the babies and the uh, toddlers, but that uh, men did too, do too, actually, but so do also do other members of the group. So we can infer. I, I think that this is perhaps because, you know, anything in prehistory is really interpretation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in Chattahuyak, for example, uh, there are a few, uh, you know, the grave goods, so to speak, you know, what people are buried with, uh, are, don't show any huge signs of inequality at all. But there are two, uh, as I wrote in the Chalice and the Blade, two uh, types of graves that had what they, what archaeologists uh, who have excavated Chattahuya, which is the largest Neolithic site uh, actually ever excavated, uh, that was peaceful for a thousand years, and that's the place where I just said uh, there are no signs that there was gender inequality. But what uh, we find there is that there are two special graves, and one, and they decided they were graves of priestesses and priests, and the graves of the that they thought were of priestesses had mirrors, whereas the priests had sort of special belts of some kind. So, yes, I think that there were. Uh, it wasn't a completely flat organization. You know, I make a distinction in my work because we need new words between hierarchies of domination, and we know those. You know, it's like in later art we see rulers, you know, on elevated pedestals with, you know, their subjects groveling before them, and usually they're bigger. Uh, you know, the rulers, are, they're males by then. Uh, are bigger, uh, whereas, uh, you know, than than their code subjects, uh, what we really um, seem to see there are more hierarchies of actualization where power is uh, used not to dominate, you know, the the blade is the symbol of the power and domination systems, to to take life, to, you know, to instill fear, Uh, but uh, to support life and to nurture life and to illuminate life, which, of course, is the symbol of the chalice 
in the title of my book, The Chalice and the Blade. So, yes, it's inference, but we can infer quite a few things, can't we? And for me, one of the most interesting remains from Minoan Crete is the so-called procession fresco, where instead of being, well, first of all, the central figure is a female, a woman, a high priestess, bare-breasted, you know, the best symbolizing not only sexuality, but also the power to nurture. Mm -hmm. Uh, With her arms raised in benediction, you know, the Pope still has the same gesture. But rather than being on an elevated pedestal, she and the priests who are bringing offerings to her are on the same level. So yes, she has power, but it's more the power to bless, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's specifically female as symbolized through the breast, which that's where I'm thinking equality doesn't mean that men and women are doing exactly the same things or able to do the same things. We're we're different. And, you know, Max Dashu, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with her work, she and I had a conversation about gender and how the way it's constructed under patriarchy is it's a social system of subordinating females to males, but in egalitarian societies, gender could be the culture that's based off of the biology that, that you know, is a beautiful thing, like women breastfeeding together in a circle and somebody painting that and making a beautiful work of art uh, around that. You know, it's only women that are going to be breastfeeding. There's nothing bad about that or wrong about that. And so instead of, like, this call to abolish gender, rather let's – this was what Max was arguing, and I'm not sure where I stand on this, actually, as, as a feminist and with today's lingo the way that it is. But not to abolish gender, but to create gender in a way that is egalitarian and respectful of the differences between men and women. Well, this is, of course, you know, the the, um, the slogan that we hear so much about valuing diversity, isn't it? I mean, it's not about everybody being the same. That's not what equality means. But it means more fluid gender roles, certainly, which is what we're seeing. You know, men are... So many young men and some older men are, you know, feeding babies, changing their diapers. You know, this quote, once despised women's work, which was anathema to so-called masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And women are entering positions of leadership, which, again, you know, was anathema to the notion that, uh, you know, um, women... And and women uh, have internalized a lot of this, you know, which is beginning to change, thank goodness, you know, that women are not fit to govern, women are not fit to make decisions, that that is, you know, illogical, uh, you know, they're emotional. I mean, of course, men are emotional too, but men get parceled out in domination system, only those emotions, contempt and anger, uh, that are appropriate for those who dominate, right? whereas women get the so-called soft emotions, which is deprives men of their full humanity, just as uh, barring women from anger deprives 
women of our full humanity. So we're in a very interesting period right now of, of more gender fluidity, but also, and this is something I've worked on very, very hard, and my book on economics called The Real Wealth of Nations deals with uh, something that has been disastrous for women, men, and children of both genders, which is the devaluation, not only of women, uh, for so many millennia in most societies, you know, because, I mean, there are some, uh, and there are also periods where this changes, but also the devaluation of anything stereotypically considered feminine, such as caring, caregiving, and nonviolence, because that's what we have to really change, and it's only as the status of women rises, as it did uh, in nations like Sweden, Finland, Norway, that you can have more caring policies, because caring, and men, not only women, vote for them because as the status of women rises, men no longer find it such a threat to their so-called masculinity to also embrace the so-called feminine. Mm. It's about systems dynamics. And mm-hmm. that's what my work is about. It's not about simple causes and effects, just as it isn't about you know, so-called patriarchy against so-called matriarchy. It's about a whole different frame mm-hmm. for looking at human possibilities. And it's a frame that actually is more congruent with both the evidence that we have today from neuroscience about human possibilities, the evidence from archaeology, from anthropology. But it's not an easy frame for people to switch to because we're so used to these terms like matriarchy, patriarchy, left versus right, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in studying feminism and especially contemporary feminism as it's on the cutting edge of feminist activism, it's just interesting to see all these terms and how we really need to have a systems view and look at the dynamics of all of the different things that are involved. And a lot of the current uh, politics that is getting out there is very based on individuals' experiences and perceptions as opposed to looking at systems and maybe coming from more of a sociological point of view. I just wanted to point out um, in that light that in the current language that I'm familiar with, we don't call it gender fluid. That, that, that language comes from the transgenderist body of thought that's out there. From the feminist point of view, what we call it is gender non-conforming. And the difference is... <laughs> The difference is that um, there's a resistance in the gender non-conforming to the dominant and subordinate roles that are enforced through patriarchal gender, organized gender. And so whereas gender fluid makes it seem like, oh, I can be this or I can be that and we can just, it's, we're all just flowing back and forth between you know, all these different genders that are out there or something, and it just doesn't acknowledge the dominance and subordination within the way gender is organized in the world. Thank you, Cecil, for pointing this out. 
You know, I think we used gender fluid long before the transgender movement uh, appeared on the scene, but I guess it's been co-opted into meaning something that was not intended with postmodernism, really, with this notion that everything is relative and, uh, you know, which are very regressive movements, really, because, I mean, if there's no such thing, no such category as woman, obviously there cannot be a uh, a women's movement, right? Uh, So, I mean, so this is, is, uh, it passes for being radical and revolutionary, but actually uh, plays uh, very much into the hands of not only the status quo, but regression. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like uh, gender nonconformist. Uh, what I uh, would prefer is a term that isn't negative. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let's not get derailed on that because I think we want to talk about our hidden history, which we must make visible. And I get a lot of mail, not only from women who say that my work, my books, have transformed their lives, but from men. And I love it when men give my book to women in their families or in their circles, because men, too, are looking for positive roles uh, to leave behind this ridiculous equation of real, quote, masculinity uh, with not being like a woman, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> with not being soft or caring or nonviolent. So it's a struggle, isn't it, for the basics. And one of the things that distinguishes the domination model and the partnership model is that it looks really not only at uh, what, you know, so-called progressives, uh, you know, left, uh, liberal, look at, which is what I call the top of dismantling the top of the domination pyramid, but at the foundations, gender relations, parent-child relations, which are so foundational, right? To mm-hmm. Nothing less we know today, because these are the relations children first observe and experience uh, on how our brains develop. So that's that's what my work is about. It's an integrated, fully holistic model that really looks at the interaction between an authoritarian family and an authoritarian state or tribe, uh, at the use of violence in intimate relations and its use in international relations rather than sort of pretending that they're not connected. And you began what you just said by saying it's important for us to look back and unearth these stories from the prehistoric past. Why is that important for us to be aware of um, how things used to be organized and the whole history then leading up to where we are now? Well, because one of the ways uh, that uh, we humans are influenced in uh, what we perceive as natural, as normal, as moral, uh, are narratives, right? Stories, especially stories about so-called human nature. And uh, what this hidden heritage really establishes is that it doesn't have to be this way. 
Mm-hmm. And that's very, very important. That's why I think the studies of foragers are important, the anthropology, archaeology. Uh, but it needs to be applied not only uh, to the situation of particular women or men, but to the kind of social system we have. Yeah. Guiding values. Yeah. It's economics, it's politics, it's religion. Right. It's education. Like I said, I work in the public schools, and if we could get some par- partnership models, policies in the public schools, wow, would that change the world within a generation? You know, do you have any thing that you would like to say in particular to our listeners who are largely radical feminists and lesbian feminists? Well, I think that what I want to say is that you are the leading edge of the movement towards a partnership society. And that I know that we're in a period of regression uh, coming from many sides. Uh, not only from regressives who want to get us back, you know, to this notion that there's, you know, no other possibility except the male dominance, male violence. That's, that's just how it is, right? But also, unfortunately, from internecine battles within uh, the movement itself, within the movements for social justice and for uh, respect of human rights. So I just want to say, keep at it. And I would like to recommend that you might want to start thinking of the very important strategy that I have used and that the Center for Partnership Studies uses in our trainings and in the materials that are available, which is to expand the focus from uh, well, I, I, for example, when I spoke to the State Department, um, my, the title of my lecture was What's Good for Women is Good for the World. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been one of the main approaches, but it's based on actually empirical evidence. If you go, for example, to centerforpartnership.org, you'll find that we did the first study called Women, Men, and the Global Quality of Life, showing that the status of women is a powerful predictor of general quality of life. Mm -hmm. Even more powerful in some instances. For example, the availability of uh, family planning is a better predictor than GDP of quality of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure how to articulate this, but within our listenership, we have some lesbian separatists. And I don't think that's really the term that's used anymore. I'm not sure, maybe female separatists or... Anyway, the um, idea, the basic idea, you might be familiar with Marilyn Fry's work. She wrote Separatism and Power in the 1970s at the height of the women's movement, the second wave women's movement. Basically, the idea is that because, and, and yes, raising women's status in society, the, you know, the society that's made up of women, men, children, everybody, raising women's status is beneficial to not only women, but to everyone. And, and I hear that. 
But because that, you know, what do we do first? Like, there are women who are in such abusive situations because the men in their lives are not practicing a partnership model. And with no matter how much education, no matter how many, you know, policies that might come down on these particular men, there are women who are suffering from their abuse so much that they need to have a separate space from this oppressor class, you know, a place where they can be just with other women. And I'm just wondering how that might fit into a partnership model or if it's maybe a phase or, a, you know, like a stage towards a partnership model where you have to have that removal from the oppressor because it's just so bad, you know. And I think you're right. I think it is a part of the movement. It's part of the partnership movement because when you need a space, a safe space for healing, then you have to have the separation. And unfortunately, as you say, uh, so many women uh, continue to suffer horrific uh, violence and abuse. I've, I've been uh, a leader in the work. Well, I wrote the first article for the Human Rights Quarterly on what later became known as women's rights or uh, human rights. And that was back in 1987. Mm-hmm. And more recently, I've written a great deal about, well, I, uh, I wrote an article for a Cambridge University Press book, which I'd really love to see feminists use to include gender as a protected category under the Rome Statute, uh, which protects on the basis of ethnicity or race. It should also include gender because uh, of the incredible, well-documented by now, violence against women in our world. So this is, uh, you know, an area that I know all too well, frankly. I, I think that we, we, we really need to make a distinction, as you say, between what we need right now and what some women absolutely must have right now, which is the safety. Of right. And the ability to say no and to have boundaries because so much of the way domination is carried out is by women just being available for exploitation by men. And so the biggest act of defiance in that situation is to say no and to have a boundary and just to remove yourself from the abuse. And that, you know, we're losing that right to gather as a people away from men. And I don't know, it's it's all a part of the same struggle, but I, I think it's interesting to have this conversation because I kind of go back and forth, like, I, I, I want to be really practical. I want to be really practical. And plus, I love my dad so much, you know, as a human being. And like all the things that he taught me about gardening and biking, and he very much brought me up in a partnership model kind of way, which is sort of, I think, why I'm as feminist as I am in some ways, you know, is that, well, that and my mom worked outside of the home, and she was also a good role model in that way, too. But, you know, there are, there, there are times when I wish to just be with my sisters, you know, it's like, 
when you go to a social gathering in here where I live, it's male dominated. It's like men are the ones that are playing the music up on the stages. Men are the ones that you, you can just feel the domination overall in the system, in the social fabric of the public, of our society, you know. And so it, it's so amazing and refreshing when you, when women create society, when women create their own special village, which is what the Michigan Women's Music Festival was for 40 years. And, you know, it was women and, and children, girl children, but we, we were completely separate for one week in August. And we were doing the, you know, groundbreaking and putting up the stages and the sound system and the lights and all of the normally thought of as masculine roles or roles for men. Everything was done by women in this in this village of sometimes 10,000 women in at the height of it in the 1980s. And it was shut down, you know, because it was seen as hateful and bigoted and not cool to, for women to take up that space and that time one week, once a year. <laughs> and it was such a healing space for so many women. And it's just, and it was such an empowering space for so many girls who got to see women in these powerful roles that they weren't weren't able to, you know, it's harder to see when you're in the mixed group and what is known as public, but what public is is really male domination. I mean, what you point out is uh, so basic, and it, it ties in exactly with one of the major themes of my work because it isn't that we want to be like the male role only. We want the the power of women and of men to be human. That's what this is all about. But feminism, as I said, radical feminism especially, it is the leading edge because you cannot have a more caring, a less violent, a more just society as long as those qualities of caring, of nonviolence, are subordinated along with, of course, the stereotypical association of only with the female half of humanity. I, I mean, I, I, I think that like you, uh, you know, when you, I mean, it's very moving what you said, you love your father, you also love your mother. Uh, there are two types, you know? I mean, that's physiologically how we are. And I think we uh, have to look at uh, how can we make society better for both. And one of the most powerful and important and indeed foundational interventions is this changing the gender sickness that is part of the domination system. Because, you know, I mean, when you look worldwide, not only at the West, that gender sickness is associated uh, almost universally in very extreme forms with uh, societies that are authoritarian and that are violent. And that's not coincidental. I've studied mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that Yes, we need to heal, and that's part of it. But a part of the healing 
uh, is to also image that we as feminists are the leading edge of the partnership movement. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I learned at MishFest, Michigan Women's Music Festival, is that even though we were separate and completely separating ourselves from men for one week and healing ourselves, that those girls and those women that go from that space back out into mixed society are happier, are healthier, are able to function better. And so it actually, that separatist space actually does benefit, I think, the society as a whole. And we we really need to give women those safe spaces, which was a part of the movement in the 70s with all of the, the shelters for battered women and that kind of thing, you know, that we don't see as much anymore. Well, as we've got we, to bring it back. We've got to bring it back. We've got to bring consciousness raising back somehow. Because, but it has to be times change. And I think that uh, as women have gained a foothold, because that's all we have, in the so-called men's world, right, of politics, of economics, and that's all we have. Uh, and in some places we don't even have a toehold. The question for us isn't getting a bigger piece of the existing pie, but to use a woman's metaphor, making a different, a better pie. Yeah. And, and, and that's what the partnership movement is about. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that we don't need, I mean, when to find your power, you have to distance yourself separate yourself, at least temporarily, as you said, from a dynamic in which the roles uh, of women are supposed to be uh, subordinate, you know, like massaging male's ego, you know, serving men. I mean, if you have a model, by the way, of humanity, where one half of humanity is not only supposed to be served and the other half is supposed to serve, you really don't have a model for any economic equality or equity, do you? Mm-hmm. These are the issues, the connections. I mean, I'm asking people in my work to connect the dots. By, first of all, looking at some of the dots that are marginalized as, quote, just women's issues or just children's <laughs> issues. And secondly, then, to connect them in a different way, to understand that it's not coincidental that the so-called uh, religious right in the United States, which is really, the, the, you know, it's, it's not religious fundamentalism, it's domination fundamentalism, mm-hmm. that they pay so much attention that for them a top priority is, quote, getting women back into a, quote, traditional family, which is a code word for a rigidly male-dominated authoritarian family. That's also highly punitive so that children learn that it's very painful to question orders, no matter how brutal or or crazy or unjust. I mean, I'm I'm asking people to sort of look at the world through different lenses and get away from the right-left religious. You know, people on the extreme right and the extreme left, they're almost interchangeable, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're into the domination system. So that's what my work is about. But Gender, I mean, Charles and the Blade, you know, uh, is about unpacking, revealing the centrality, I mean, the essential difference 
between these earlier, more goddess-oriented societies where there was diversity, but there was not the subordination. But were difference, beginning with the difference between female and male, which is pretty basic, you know, invisible, is not equated with dominating or being dominated with superiority or inferiority, and yes, with being served or serving. Because that's a template for equating every other difference, race, religion, you know, it's Shia versus Shia, it's Shiite versus Shia, right? It's not just in the United States that of racism or of sexism. It's a worldwide sickness. A lot of it is connected 